If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 639. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, click on that super thanks button underneath this video to show how much you do like the podcast. That's throwing a few pennies my way. You can also support the show by going to McClanahan Academy. Enroll free of charge. Also purchase one of my classes there. I've got a new class coming out right here this week in the end of May, if you're listening to this, May 2022. And it's going to be a great one on John C. Calhoun. In fact, I'm going to talk a little bit about Calhoun today in this particular podcast. But that's the class that's coming out. You're going to want to get that one because it's really going to change your mind about Calhoun. Also, support the show by clicking on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way there. You can click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. You can go to uh, learn true, T-R-U-E, learntruehistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. Haven't talked about that in a while. I teach there with Tom and a lot of other great instructors. That also supports the show. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Send me those show requests. And today actually is a listener-generated episode. I had a listener ask me, what did the founding generation think about equality, or more importantly, democracy? Because we often use these two words interchangeably. And that's not out of the realm of, uh, of thought here, to use the two words equality and democracy in the same way, because there were people that did it all the time. But let's talk about democracy. Yesterday's podcast, I brought up this uh, issue of Stonewall Jackson High School being changed back to Stonewall Jackson High School after uh, 2020 and the name change. And people in that area of the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia said, you know what? We weren't really consulted on this. People just did it. It was a reflex action. It was uh, something ridiculously stupid. So let's change it back. And of course, the some of the lefties on the board are screaming, that's anti-democratic. And you've got other people saying, this is anti-democratic. This is a, this is a distortion of American democracy. Um, so I find it funny that we have this term democracy thrown around, and most people don't even know what that meant, of course, in the founding generation. And most people don't know what that meant uh, even before that. How did, how did people define democracy, and what do we mean by democracy? There was a, an episode I did a while ago on the term liberty. This is another one that we often use. What is liberty? Uh, what does liberty mean to some people and other people? It might be a, a different thing. And in fact, there were different versions of liberty in North America in the 17th century. So you had a conception of liberty in New England, for example, that was dramatically different than a conception of liberty in, say, South Carolina or Virginia or the western part of Pennsylvania. There were different ideas of liberty and those different strands of liberty um, and how the political culture has developed over time are still apparent in American society today. So when we talk about this term democracy, the same thing applies. Democracy can mean a number of different things. To some, 
It simply means equality. And when you take democracy to the core, you can understand how people could get that impression, that definition of democracy, equality and democracy. And of course, the progressives made a big push for this in the late 19th and early 20th century. Because if democracy is equality, and then you need to start pushing equality of condition, uh, equality of circumstance. And so this is what the progressives did quite a bit in the, again, in the late 19th, early 20th century. And in fact, they started relating democracy to education. Democracy became uh, synonymous with this idea of everyone getting an education, everyone having the same starting point. And of course, it all goes back to this idea of the tabula rasa, uh, John Locke, and everyone is born equal. Uh, and But of course, only in terms of rights. I mean, this is where you get into what were they talking about equality. And, I, and I've had a discussion about equality already. But this idea of democracy and equality being synonymous is an important development. Now, does that necessarily mean political equality or does it mean some other type of equality? So if you go back to, say, Alexis de Tocqueville, whose very famous book, Democracy in America, has the, has the term in the title. And what did de Tocqueville mean by democracy when he talks about democracy in America? Well, uh, democracy to de Tocqueville meant an absence of aristocracy. He did talk about the term equality. In fact, he points to New England as saying it's a completely democratic area. And I think it's, when you look at that and you look at how he defines that, this is important for the neoconservatives because they look at New England and think that's the pure expression of Americanism in America. It's the pure expression of what America was all about. You have the democratic New Englanders against the aristocratic or oligarchic Southerners. Now, they wouldn't necessarily use the term aristocratic. They would use oligarchic. And this is important because what they're doing there is saying, well, you've got a purely pure expression of Anglo-Americanism, as de Tocqueville outlines in Democracy in America in New England, against an anti-American view of democracy in the South. So oligarchic is not necessarily anti-democratic. Anti it means that there is the rule of the few in positions of power, but that people still have access to the ballot. Those people in positions of power didn't necessarily have more power than someone else when it came to voting. That's, that's an important part of this. In fact, de Tocqueville is, is even careful about this. He talks about democracy as meaning political equality in an absence of class and leisure. So absence of class and leisure. Was there a class structure in the South as opposed to the North? That was the North completely absent of class. And I think this is an important distinction to make. We know that they weren't. We know through David Hackett Fisher's Albion Seed, which somebody actually asked me about too, if I should, they should get that book, absolutely, Get David Hackett Fisher's Albion Seed. It's a great book. But they asked, if you look at Hackett Fisher, and he talks about the class structure in New England, with the Puritans in particular, you could say the Quakers had a certain uh, absence of class to them in their hegemonic, I'm sorry, in their uh, reciprocal liberty. There certainly was that more in the Quaker society than anywhere else, but the Puritans were definitely interested in class. And this gets back to their idea of uh, the 
uh, community liberty over l individual liberty. And certain people in the community had more rights than others, more liberty than others, because there was a class structure. Now, it may not have been related to finances, but of course, that would eventually develop in New England. You had people that had a lot of money and people that didn't. I mean, look, John Hancock was arguably the wealthiest man in America on the eve of the American War for Independence, and he's living in Boston. He had slaves. I mean, so the fact is Massachusetts was not uh, some bastion of absence of class. It had classes. It had a class structure. Um, they did have a certain uh, type of democracy to them because, of course, people could vote, but there were even restrictions on voting in Massachusetts. When de Tocqueville wrote Democracy in America, there were restrictions on voting, and just as there were restrictions on voting in the South. So he, he talks more about a social structure than anything else. You know, Sam Adams, who was, of course, a leader in Massachusetts politics, used to walk down to the wharf and uh, rub elbows with the, with the workers down there. And, but someone like John Adams would never do that. He wasn't really accepted there, and John Adams was perhaps more aristocratic than his cousin, Sam. So you still had this view of aristocracy and democracy and what that meant in class structure in New England, just as you had it in the South. And so in the South, you still had democracy. You still had public participation. You still had uh, suffrage, which was an important part of this, the ability of people to vote. And um, what you didn't have in America, it didn't matter where you were, was hereditary aristocracy. So this idea of democracy as a system was in contrast to aristocracy as a system, where you had hereditary aristocracy, you had people born into station, and because they're born into station, they have certain rights, responsibilities, and powers that other people don't have. You never had that in America. And de Tocqueville talks about this. You have the bottom up. Anybody can make money. Anybody can go from the bottom to the top in America. And that was also a key indicator of democracy. And you look at the South, you look at the North, you look at the West, you had this kind of stuff happening all the time. You had rags to riches stories all over the place. Now, once you became wealthy, your family could certainly try to maintain that wealth, but it didn't always happen. In fact, we know that people were ruined, impoverished in America. They had money and then they lost it. And so this happened all the time. It particularly happened in the South after the war when you had large segments of the Southern population impoverished uh, and that had means and didn't have anything. So the, the uh, aftermath of the war was simply impoverishing entire region of people who, uh, who had uh, money and who had uh, means before and didn't have anything after. This is a big issue. Um, and that affected everybody, regardless of race in the South. So uh, we have this, this, in, this definition of democracy that means political equality, and it means the ability of people to participate in the political system. So there's that impression of democracy. And this is what the founding generation talked about at times, uh, though they were suspicious of an expression of democracy, uh, which would be mob rule. So then you have that, that expression of democracy develop. And of course, when you look at the, the debates over the ratification of the Constitution, they talked a lot about democracy. 
And they thought that there was too much democracy in America. In fact, this, this statement was made in the Philadelphia Convention. One of the things the founding generation were concerned about was the impact of democracy on the states. And they pointed to places like Massachusetts. And they said, look, we wouldn't have had Shays Rebellion without all this democracy. The democracy is the problem. They looked at places that, like Rhode Island, where you had, which wasn't even at the Philadelphia Convention. And they talked about Rhode Island uh, quite a bit as being a, an example of what you didn't want in your states because it had too much democracy. Uh, so you had this, certainly this aversion to what they considered to be mob rule. And they thought the Constitution would clamp down on some of this stuff if they were to ratify the document. So democracy to the founders was to be feared. Uh, they were suspicious of the impact of democracy. The Constitution is certainly an anti-democratic document, and the progressive left knows this, which is why they don't like it. They don't like it because it's not about uh, their version of democracy. Now, I will say this. It is a democratic document when it comes to the Senate. And the people would say, the Senate is completely anti-democratic. No, no, no. It's an equality part of the document because every state in, in the Senate is equal. You have two senators. So there is equality in that particular part of the document. There's the equality of the states. It doesn't matter how large or how small. It doesn't matter how many people you have or don't have. It is a complete expression of democracy in a federal republic, in a union of states, every state is equal. Now, in the House of Representatives, you do have an expression of popular democracy, meaning majoritarian democracy. And I'm going to get into that in a second, because that's what the progressives also want, is majoritarian democracy. But uh, the House certainly is an expression of majoritarian democracy, because it's based on population and representation there is, is uh, unequal in the states. Now, what about the presidency? Well, the presidency is anti-democratic because you don't have the president directly elected by the people. They're directly elected by the Electoral College. And so the Electoral College, of course, the electors are elected by the people themselves, but then they can do whatever they want. So the Electoral College, which is also based on the size of the states, but some states have more than others, um, so there is a democratic element there, so to speak. I mean, California gets more electoral college votes than Wyoming. But the fact is, there is a certain, there's a buffer between the direct majoritarian system and the presidency. And of course, you can win the presidency without getting the most votes in, in a, you know, majoritarian democracy. It's not just 50 plus 1% that gets the president elected. You have to have a majority in the electoral college, which puts the states back into play, right? So the states then, there's a check on rampant democracy, and the electors, at least originally, could vote for whoever they wanted to. It wasn't that uh, you were voting for an elector and you told them, go vote for this candidate. No, you voted for an elector, and that elector would go out and vote for whoever they wanted. Now today, in the states... You have a system where uh, the states, the electors, are bound by oath to vote for whoever wins the popular vote. And there can be financial repercussions for that. There are some issues there. And, of course, we saw that uh, in the 2016 election. There were some 
electors talking about, you know, not voting for Clinton or not voting for Trump or whatever the case may be. And then we saw it in 2020 as well when there was some discussion about two slates of electors coming out of these states. So the Electoral College certainly is anti-democratic. So is the Supreme Court. I mean, it's we don't vote for judges in the federal court system. Uh, you can say the, it's the only court outlined in the Constitution. Then, of course, you have the federal court, which federal courts which are based on that model. But we don't vote for these people. They are appointed by the executive branch. And then the Senate, which is, uh, which I mean, now we have you know direct election of senators, but used to be appointed by the state legislators. And so you have the equality of the states. But then the Senate confirms those appointments. So there is a buffer again between the people and the Supreme Court, and the federal court system. And again, the left knows this. This is why, and I've talked about a lefty just figured out the Supreme Court was political. Maybe we need to pack the court, make it more democratic, right? That's the whole point. Or maybe we need to abolish the Electoral College, or maybe we need to abolish the Senate. This is where this kind of stuff is coming from. They look at the founding generation, who were suspicious of democracy, who were suspicious of majoritarian rule, as an enemy of good Americanism. Now, as we move forward in time, we start to equate democracy with majoritarian government. And what does that mean? Well, we have a system where the 50 plus 1% is going to rule the roost, right? So if I have, if there's 101 people, if you can get 51 people voting one way, well, you have all the power. And that becomes a majoritarian system. Now, people, political scientists and political philosophers and others have started, started to talk about this as you saw more and more democracy throughout the world. So it wasn't just America. You started seeing democratic governments in France and in Britain and in Germany. And you started seeing these things pop up. And how does all that work? And what type of political system are we going to have? What is the expression of the will of the people? And what is the expression of the majority and all these things? So you start having this expression of the majority being a numerical majority. So it's simply 50 plus 1%. Now, what does that mean for good government? Is that good? So we have this idea that aristocracy is bad because it's the rule of one, right? Or that oligarchy is bad because it's the rule of the few. Or that plutocracy is bad because it's the rule of the rich. So democracy is supposed to be good because it's the rule of the many. And essentially all that's happened in the last 150 years or so in America and elsewhere is that we have decided, not through example, but through simply this is fair, that the rule of the many is the most equitable system because supposedly that is the best political system that we can hope for. And it's the best political system we can hope for because it's the rule, because it's fair, right? I mean, everybody gets a chance. Now, is that true, though? Has democratic government produced the best kind of results? I mean, has it produced a political system that is the most fair and the most equitable? Has it produced a system that's had the least amount of corruption, that's been the best with the resources that states have? Has it produced less war? Has it done anything that would make government better, right? When you think about this term better or worse, and uh, has it produced more rights? Has it produced, has it produced the results that we could say, well, this is better for society as a whole? 
is society better today politically or socially or economically than it was, you know, 100 years ago? And so this is where you start asking these kind of questions. Now, Calhoun, and I bring up Calhoun here, asking these questions, and I leave those questions open-ended to you because you're going to get a, a variety of responses in all of those things. And was it simply politics or government that created the environment to make all these things happen? When you talk about, for example, standard of living, is that something that happened because of democracy? Or is it something that happened because of uh, because of a, of a view of economics? I mean, what happened there? So these are important questions. But Calhoun, of course, had a response for this. And this is where I'm bridging into this class I'm going to do on Calhoun. Calhoun was concerned about majoritarian democracy. He was not anti-democratic. In fact, he talked a lot about democracy as being a good system. Democracy was the best system to have. But what he was afraid of and what he didn't want was majoritarian democracy the tyranny of the majority, the tyranny of the 50 plus 1%, because the tyranny of the majority could be just as destructive as the rule of one, of a hereditary aristocracy. Because you could get a situation where the minority is continually plundered. This is what people worried about. You had a majoritarian government, and of course, they want power. This is what it really comes I mean, We have to understand government is about power. And so that, that majoritarian faction comes into power, and they simply plunder the minority. They take away, they strip away their rights, they strip away their resources, they strip away their property, whatever it is. They strip all these things away and they enrich themselves at the expense of others. So Calhoun's concern was the prospect of a despotic government that had monopoly on power because you had a numerical majority. And so he thought the only kind of good government you had to protect against abuse of power, which is something you're going to have government. And when you have government, you can have abuse of power. You can have it as a monarchy. You can have it as an oligarchy. You can have it as a plutocracy. And you can have it as a democracy. So if democracy is the best, if we're saying, okay, well, we believe that having more people participate in the system is the best, then you have to have a check on majoritarian democracy, on numerical majorities. Because if you don't, you're going to have a situation where the minority is going to be constantly abused. And so his solution to that was what he called the concurrent majority, where the minority essentially had a veto on the will of the majority. If it was going to affect their property, their lives, their rights, whatever it is, the minority could say, you have no power here. We are going to veto what you're doing. And he brings up examples of this. Uh, in his discussions of these things, and I get into it in quite a lot of detail in this new class on John C. Calhoun, but one he brings up is Rome, right? Rome had the Tribune, and the Tribune could veto the will of the Senate. It had a simple, absolute veto. No, I forbid. I forbid this from happening. And the Tribune was the, the expression of the people of Rome, the, the plebeians, right? So the patrician had this kind of veto from the minority, or in this case, maybe the majority, on the, the government of Rome. And he brings up Poland, where you had some of this stuff going on too. So he has examples of this. And he says, look, in our system, in a federated system, the real expression of the concurrent majority could be simply the states. The states could say, well, I forbid. I forbid this piece of legislation being passed because it hurts our liberties, our property, whatever it is. And so in order to get around that, you would have to have real majoritarian government. You'd have to have a policy in place that would be accepted by everybody. 
Now, there's going to be compromise in that. But he, what, what he says here is that you wouldn't even have bills presented unless there was already some type of compromise baked into the legislation because it wouldn't go anywhere. You would already have to work this out. You wouldn't say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to write this tariff bill, for example, and it's going to plunder these people, but not these people, or it's going to enrich these people, but not these people, and we're going to ram it through the government. Well, from the beginning, this would be a non-starter, and it would be a non-starter because it would already be vetoed by one section. So you wouldn't have a tariff that would do that. You might have a tariff, but it would not be a tariff that would benefit all benefit some and burden others. That would be, I mean, this is where Calhoun would use this theory in the 1830s. And it could be applied to just about anything. I mean, you can even take an issue that the left might enjoy, right? A civil rights issue um, where you could say this, this group, this minority group would be harmed by a piece of legislation so they could simply have a veto on it. Well, we veto that because that's going to harm us. So it, it doesn't matter uh, if, if the majority wanted X, Y, or Z. What you're going to have in this particular type of government, if you had a concurrent majority system, is a government that's so limited in power that it's not going to abuse it. And this is, what he, this is why he thought this was the best, because you would have an adherence to the original Constitution, where you would have enumerated powers, delegated powers, and that would be it. And of course, the states would then be able to do all these other things. Now, could you have the concurrent majority at the state level? Well, you could. you could. You could bring this all the way down to the state level and actually have a system where the states would, actually, would, would also be responsive to these kind of things. So Calhoun was a real political philosopher in thinking about the problems of democracy. I remember when I was a senior in high school, I took a class called The Problems of Democracy. You wouldn't hear that nowadays because the left has, has created a, a, an environment where democracy is never a problem. Democracy is always the answer. It's always the solution, unless, of course, they're getting outcomes they don't like, and then they want to try to rig the system so they get outcomes that they want. We simply equate it with majoritarian rule, majority wins, get the most votes, get people out there voting. But there's so much more to democracy in that term than what we often think about it today. And that's why I want to do this podcast. And I'm glad that the listener brought this up because it gives me an opportunity to kind of bridge into what I'm going to do with Calhoun in that particular class. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll see you tomorrow. See you then.